1: Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I am your host, Alexandre. We have been hearing for some years about the fentanyl epidemic killing tens of thousands of people in the US every year. An astonishing 70% of the more than 100,000 deaths by drug overdose in the States last year involved fentanyl mixed in with a substance. This is increasingly an issue in the UK too. In February of this year, the government added synthetic opioids to the class A schedule. But now fentanyl is being mixed in with something even more deadly, xylazine, a substance that not only makes overdose more likely, but treatment more difficult. My guest today is someone who has experienced addiction from both sides, battling it personally and trying to help others. She's the founder of the Grace Project, an organization that provides help on the ground in Philadelphia, considered by most to be the center of the so-called Trank Dope Blight. Welcome to The Bunker, Megan Cohen.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Megan, can we start with some basics? kensington avenue is where you were homeless and addicted and where you have returned to help others now that you have managed to get clean can you describe it for our listeners because from the reports i have seen it is not a place that anyone elsewhere in the world can even fathom i think
0: yeah you know and it's really hard to to put it into words and describe it you know i frequently when we have new volunteers that want to come out with us I, i try to give them a little bit of a rundown on what to expect. And without fail, every time, you know, I let them know that I'm not going to be as effective as I should be and, and, and getting you prepared for this, you know, and every time they, they come back and they say it's a lot worse than what I expected. You know, it's the largest open air drug market. It's not even comparable. You know, I, I've been homeless in many different areas that are considered, you know, really tough mm. areas. And there's just nothing like it. Um, you know, there people are using everywhere, right out in the open. Um, you know, almost it's like every other block is a drug block, um, and and it's not something that's hidden. You know, violence is something that's very prominent out there. Um, you see uncapped needles, empty drug bags. Um, you know, scattered on the ground everywhere. It's something different. It's almost like you step into another world, um, and it's heartbreaking. You know, because. All of the people that are out there, whether they're residents that, you know, can't get out of the area or the people that are out there that are addicted um, or even the, the dealers who are raised that, you know, mm. this this is the way.
1: This is their economy, effectively. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Um, so it's just, it's different. It's a whole whole different world out there.
1: Megan, what is fentanyl and why has it become so ever-present? A charity last year said that over 90% of all street drugs it had tested, of any kind, had been adulterated with fentanyl.
0: Fentanyl is a lot stronger than regular heroin was. And I remember when fentanyl came into the picture, I was actually... Well, xylazine too, I was still using, but it wasn't as prominent. But I remember when that shift started happening initially with fentanyl and it wasn't something that was like announced, you know, to us that, that we're using the drugs. Um, But what we noticed was the drugs were stronger and overdoses were happening more frequently, you know, and, and didn't really know much more about it. And then it started coming out. Oh, well, everyone's doing fentanyl. And I remember one of, you know, many of the times that I went into treatment and I would take a drug test and, um, be shocked because they'd say, oh, there's no opiates in your system. And it was because what I was getting, you know, as heroin was actually fentanyl, you know, so it wasn't coming up as an opiate on my drug screens. It's tough because you almost, when you're stuck in that, we wanted it. It was stronger. It was a more of a high. The rush was different, you know, and then it, it, and it's cheaper. So the dealers are putting it in, making their drugs stronger at a cheaper price. And then, you know, it it took over the drug supply. And like I said, I mean, xylazine is something that has been in the drug supply for since the early 2000s. But like fentanyl was one of those things that kind of, you know, slowly crept into it more and more. Um, Again, cheaper makes the high longer, you know, and now here we are over 90% of the, the drug supply. I mean, it's almost impossible to get actual heroin.
1: And that's the danger, right, that you think you're taking your regular dose of heroin or snorting your regular line of coke. But actually, what you're injecting or snorting is primarily fentanyl, which is so much more stronger. That I was reading somewhere, the line between a dose and an overdose is like really, really slim. You can go over the line very, very easily. And what it does is is it suppresses your breathing, right? So basically, your chest stops pumping air in and out.
0: Right. And that's, so with xylazine, you know, xylazine kind of mirrors more like a Xanax or something along those lines. What we're seeing is that Narcan, isn't reversing overdoses the way that it was before. Now, with just fentanyl, it was still, Narcan was still working. It was taking more. But with xylazine, because it, it does, you, you can't breathe. So people need oxygen as well. So Narcan alone is not enough to reverse an overdose anymore.
1: Just to explain, Narcan is the sort of antidote that organizations like yours are putting out there that if you see someone and they look like they're overdosing on fentanyl, Basically, an injection of Narcan will reverse the effects and may save their lives. But that works less well with xylazine, which is this new synthetic thing. Can I ask you, is is the name Trank Dope, which is the street name, is it another name for xylazine or is it the name for combinations of fentanyl and xylazine? Because it wasn't massively clear to me.
0: Honestly, if it has xylazine in it, it's tranquil. <laughs> um, I see. So, I see. but you know, it's not what what people are getting right now. It's it's a mixture of fentanyl, xylazine, sometimes opiates. Uh, it, it's really kind of you don't know. You don't know what yeah, you're getting. Yeah. Um, but the whole tranq part of it, tranquilizer, is xylazine. Yeah, um, so, yeah. if xylazine is in it. Then, then it's dope.
1: Neither of those drugs are destination drugs right nobody stands on a street corner selling xylazine is that right or or is it sold on its own
0: no um it's heroin you know they'll stand on the corner and they they, they'll shout you know dope because that's what they did like dope heroin um you know rock crack so they're selling and it's the same blocks that used to have just straight heroin. I mean, like I said, I remember when the drug supply for me, like it was the same block that I was always going to, and then it switched and it was, it was just fentanyl. Um, and I remember overdosing on that and being like, well, what, what happened? You know, cause I was using the same amount. So no, it's not something that's me. And, and don't get me wrong that the individuals that are out there now, they, they know now they know because you know, the, the wounds that xylazine causes too. I mean, people are losing limbs out there constantly. Um, you know, what we're, I mean, it, it is, there's no denying. So they're very aware now. But the problem is they weren't aware, you know, when it was moving into the drug supply um, at kind of a rapid rate. And the detox from it is so much worse. So now that they have the knowledge and they they know what they're putting into their body, they're so addicted to it. You know, and addiction is a powerful thing. Even if they did know, hey, xylazine's moving into the drug they supply, when do. you're addicted to something, yeah, you, you kind of if that's all that you can get, and it's either that Or withdrawal, I don't blame them because I was the same way when I was actively using. Withdrawal is scary, and especially now with how much worse it's gotten because of the drug supply, I thank God every day that, you know, I got sober when I did, so I didn't have to experience the withdrawal that they have to deal with.
1: Those side effects are quite extraordinary. I was reading about them. I mean, the dramatic headline is that it rots the flesh. Basically, it affects skin healing, which means that either a puncture mark or a sort of a spot that you've scratched can become a massive sore. Does this stigmatize, quite literally in this case, the drug's victims even more, making them less likely to seek help?
0: Yes, it does. Um, You know, one of the things that I, I hate, you know, people will call it the zombie drug, you know, and, it, and the thing is, when it comes to the wounds, like, you know, there's some research done on it, but we still don't really have answers. You know, I'd be lying if I told you that I, I had them or, you know, anybody, if they said they did. I've talked to many doctors. I've done a lot of research. We still don't fully understand because it's not just people that are injecting that are getting these mm. wounds, people that are snorting it or smoking it, um, you know, are are these wounds are popping up and then they're not healing. You know, and we don't know there there may or may not be a link with, you know, hygiene, because there's some people that when, you know, they're going home, they're using and they're taking showers and all of that, they're not seeing these wounds the way that our homeless population is. But but on the same end of that, there is some people that, you know, are have access to showers and good hygiene. That are getting them so it's really just kind of all over the place we don't have all the answers yet what we know is that it wasn't meant for human consumption that's what we know Hmm. you know and that is clear now when it comes to um kind of stigmatizing it more you know it's it's heartbreaking um, because even these wounds that you know the people that we serve are getting out there it's also keeping them from being able to admit into treatment when they're willing, you know, and that in itself is a process. And then they're worried about, you know, is the hospital going to detox them effectively and comfortably, you know? So it's causing, it's causing a lot, you know, um, and not having updated detox protocols and not being more willing to accept. Cause, and, and it, it's understandable, right? These are bad wounds. These yeah. need like mm. emergency medical attention, you know, but, and then, and labeling it the zombie drug. I mean, they're not, they're not zombies out there. They're individuals that are suffering from the disease of addiction that, you know, their drug supply was changed and altered. Um, and now they're having effects from it. And unfortunately a lot of them are, are losing the limbs that are getting mm. infected. Um, you know, and it's it's heartbreaking and calling them zombies is not, it's not right.
1: Megan, I know that Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro only about two weeks ago listed Trank as a Schedule 3 drug. And I know that the, the Biden White House have identified it as a significant danger and they say they're looking at it. But what is the government doing? I mean, actually doing at, at both federal and state level?
0: That's a really good question. You know, I have been asking the same thing um, you know, I, I know, specifically like they're the county that i I said on the drug and alcohol commissions board in Bucks county and i know that they're trying to push for more wound care and and doing more research into it but out there i mean what they need to do is they need to have street side wound care out there to to care for these individuals Mm -hmm. and and do more research into this um scheduling it you know that that's great that they did it should be scheduled however that's not going to solve any of the problem that's that's not moving towards any type of of solution um you know what we need to do is, is Like I said, we need to have the wound care out there. Um, We need to make treatment more accessible for these individuals. And we need to update detox protocols so that they can actually make it through the detox instead of leaving in the middle of it and going back out to the street. I would love to know. You know, I'm constantly saying what's going to be done once. And I always get kind of roundabout answers. And oh, we're working on it. And so I don't I don't know. But just scheduling it alone is not is not going to move us into the solution part of anything.
1: Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial.
0: The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records.
1: This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality.
0: We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct.
1: This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to The Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you get the sense that there is a level of indifference towards something that is seen as a poor people problem?
0: Yes. Um, And I think that since this, you know, addiction has been moving into everybody's life. I mean, it's because it's not just a poor people problem anymore, you know, yeah. everybody's seeing it. It's touching everybody's lives. So all of a sudden, you know, now people are starting to talk about it and starting to try to find solutions. But I think that even like with the the issue with xylozine, when it's mostly concentrated in that area, do I think that it's as that they're giving it as much attention as they would if, say, you know, residents in Bucks County we're walking around with, you know, these flesh wounds. No, mm, I don't. Yeah. And I understand it's a big problem to tackle and a lot of research needs to be done. But like I said, there's there's some simple things that they can do that they can push for and it, it needs to happen. And, it, and it's not something that we can sit and wait on. I, even when it was fentanyl, I remember how long it took for people to start updating detox protocols with that and kind of getting on board with what was going on there. And it's already too late, you know, so we can't keep wasting time. And at the end of the day, like, you know, the government officials that are, you know, saying that they're going to come up with things to try to combat this. They should be sitting down with people like myself and other nonprofit mm. organizations that have people that have lived experience out on the street and are also boots on the ground dealing with these individuals all the time, instead of them just trying to figure out and come up and guess with what's going to help.
1: With their policy, with this sort of umbrella thing that sounds good as a press release. The strange thing is I've been reading a lot of reports that these substances are now sneaking into sort of the supply of New York cocaine and deaths are beginning to rise. So maybe, you know, maybe now that it becomes a not just poor people problem, there will be some effective action. The other angle is, of course, an economic one. These drugs sneak into the supply because, like you said, they're cheaper than the real thing, right? So if the state took over the dispensing of these drugs, then it could monitor quality. Right. If they brought this stuff within some kind of legal framework, then they could say, in the same way that the FDA does for all foods and drugs, that this is what it should be and this is adulterated and dangerous. So might, might a solution line the direction of some legalization or at least some non-criminalization of, of the actual victims, of the users of these things?
0: Again, it's a very controversial topic. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is harm reduction. It, it's tough because I'm not saying like, you know, legalize all drugs because I want people to be on drugs. Um, but having them at least regulated would definitely cut back on the amount of people that are overdosing and dying and give mm. them a chance to get turn their life around. I think that people think that if the supply was regulated, it would keep people using. Right. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. It's drugs still take you to this point of, you know, hopelessness and and this new low that at some point, you know, people are going to want to get their lives back on track, hopefully, but at least it it gives them, it affords them that opportunity to, to be able to make that decision one day instead of their life being cut short. But again, it's controversial and I can understand the pros and the cons of it. And and there's still also, there's still going to be people manufacturing. It's It's just, you know, People would still mm-hmm. manufacture on the side if they knew how to. So I think it's something that would be really hard to get under control. But of course, a regulated supply um, would definitely cut back on, you know, people getting these, all you know, altered substances. There's always there's criminals though. there's always people that are going to figure out a way to, you know, get their hands on that and still alter it some more or whatever it is. So it, it's it's tough. These different ideas, I think that there's ways to kind of pull from all of them. And people have to be a little bit more open-minded to like, this is what the reality of the world is today, yeah. um, you know, and, and we have to, like I said, we have to respond and and we're not going to be able to completely cut things out, but we can at least make it a little bit better and reduce some of the harm that's coming from it. And, and a regulated drug supply, the reality is, yes, it would do that, um, you yeah. know, and I know that there's people that would crucify me for saying that, but... It it's just it, it would.
1: It, it it would it's just a fact, you know? Yeah. Good policy, good policy flows from dealing with things as they are, not as we would like them to be. That's the case always exactly. and in every single sector. To wrap this up, can I ask you a, a more personal question? I, I saw a heartbreaking interview with you where you described feeling like an insect, and that word struck me very hard as someone who has also been touched by addiction in a family context, that when you were at the lowest ebb, you felt like you didn't matter, your life didn't matter. Is it difficult returning to that environment every day for your work, for your charity? Don't you find it triggers you? Isn't the instinct overwhelmingly to just run away and never look back?
0: I waited a while until I went back out to Kensington. Um, I think the first time I went out, you know, to thank some of the people that had helped me when I was out there, I went with a friend that was also sober and I had about nine months. I started Grace Project when I had about a year sober. And to this day, when I have a lot going on, I will not go out for outreach. Um, My volunteers will still be out there, but I won't be out there with them because It is an environment that I have a lot of history in and it could be triggering. You know, my job is to be very self-aware on when I should and shouldn't be out there. Mm. And then Mm. when the days I feel like I can to still understand that something could happen and, you know, it could make it look good or trauma could be triggered, you know? But what I try to do, like, because I did, I, I did feel like an insect and I did feel like I didn't matter. And I felt like, you know, my life wasn't meant to be anything else but that. And I was Hmm. praying, I was inviting death in. And the reason that I'm out there, regardless of all that, is because instead of focusing on that and the feelings that that time in my life brought up with me, I'm out there to ensure that other people don't feel that way. You know, So when I'm connecting with these individuals, it's showing them that whether they're ready to go to treatment that day or not, I love them regardless and I care about them regardless and I see them. I see them as a person and it's so important to me to do that and my volunteers understand that as well and and they're all very passionate about that because I know what it's like to have people looking mm-hmm. at you like you're disgusting and they don't they don't want you around. So I've changed the narrative. I've changed the narrative in my head. I think that that's big, you know, the way that we look at things, right? So I could just, I could focus on that, that horrible time in my life, or I can turn that horrible time in my life into something better and help other people to not have to feel the same feelings that I did and to show them that, hey, your life is meant for more. You are meant for more and you can do this. And you know, it's 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 a beautiful thing. And all of a sudden Kensington isn't just this place of hopelessness anymore, but it's a place of hope. There's people out there, there's a lot of me's out there that can turn their lives around and get their lives back on track and maybe do similar things that I do today. You know, I always say there's there's a sea of potential out there. It's just unlocking it. Um, you know, getting people to see that, getting them out there and and hopefully they they do something similar.
1: You rewrote your story. Megan Cohen. Thank you so much for educating me and my listeners and and for showing just such immense courage and passion with your work. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as three pounds a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of scientific advisor and author Daniel Waterman. Prohibition-based approaches in drug policy, despite sounding logical, lack a sound basis in empirical research and are not animated by well-defined goals. Goals that are not only consistent with the ethical aims of public health policy in general, but also with the fundamental principles of democracy, such as empowering or enabling those best placed to act. Drug policies instead animated by beliefs, assumptions, hypotheses, and expectations. Isn't it time we gave people like Megan a voice in this debate? This is Alexandre in the bunker saying over and out.
0: The Bunker USA was written and presented by Alex Andreev. The producer is Chris Jones, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.